Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to your word so that we can see your son, Jesus. And I just, yeah, invite all of us to recognize where we're at in our heart this morning, whether it be a place of excitement to open up the word, a place of sadness, a place of bitterness, anger, wherever you're at right now, just bring that in prayer to the Lord right now. And Spirit of Christ, we ask that you'd minister to all of us, that you minister through these words, that we might see Jesus today. Amen. Good morning. My name is Jake, and it's good to see you guys. Uh, we're going to continue in our series in 1 John today, and we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, so you can open that up in the Bible. And I'm going to tell you guys a story about the first time I ever came here to this church and at my experience of what it was like to walk in here for the first time, there was a question rolling through my brain over and over again. And I'm going to see if you guys can uh, guess the question as we go through the story, because it's the same question that has been rolling through your brain probably six times a second since you got up this morning. So someone invited me to this church that I met at ASU. I met him for the first time. They invited me to this cool church. I was like, sounds great. I had just become a Christian, so imagine Jake doesn't really know anything. And I drive, well, I thought I drove to the church, but I actually drove across the street to the furniture store called Copenhagen. I don't know if it's still there anymore, but I drove in the parking lot, and I was convinced I was at the right spot, but I was looking around increasingly going, I am in the wrong spot because there's furniture here, but there are no people. And so I drove back and forth across Southern trying to figure out where this church was, finally landed in the parking lot, walked in here, and saw people greeting me. And that question was running through my brain six times a second. And I was like, oh, hi. And I walked in, and I texted the person who invited me, and they let me know that they weren't going to show up. So I was by myself. And so I was sitting, I think somewhere in the back there, I, you know, I had just picked a random spot. And so I was like looking around awkwardly, the same question running through my brain over and over and over again as I was looking at all these strangers. And then I saw up on this side here, there was like more younger looking people. It was at the seven o'clock service. Anybody around for the seven o'clock service back in the day? Yeah, there's like three of you. Um, so I sat up here around some young people and I just like plopped myself and just kind of like, kind of like hoping someone would look at me because I had that same question running through my brain over and over again. And then they did the greeting time and I was really excited because I was like, ah, I'm an extrovert. This is my time to shine. <laughs> and uh, so in that, in that moment though, everything that was guiding my behavior was a question that over and over and over again runs through your brain what neurologists think probably is six times a second in the right hemisphere of your brain. So if you, didn't, if you learned like left hemispheres, like the more like you can do taxes good and spreadsheet side, and then the right hemisphere is like you're creative and artsy, and that's an oversimplification, especially what they're learning about the neurology of the brain. They're both connected. And your right side of your brain is so much more powerful and faster, and everything comes in the right side of the brain, goes through a series of questions, and whenever you can't instantly answer those questions, it goes to the left side of your brain, which then tries to figure it out. What's the question? So if you read some people like Jim Wilder or Kurt Thompson, some of these Christian neurologists, they'll go through a, a kind of a broad spectrum of these questions that go through your brain that get summarized in one question. So here's the 
Who, who's happy to see me here? What do I feel right now? Is there anyone here who understands me? How do I act like myself right now? What do my people do in this situation? You don't think about these questions. They're so fast you don't recognize them. They all boil down to one question. Who are my people? John, who wrote this book, knew that long before neurology and modern brain science knew that. He knew that how you live as a human being will be defined by how you answer that question. Who are my people? And from there, in every situation, once you answer that, you will be able to discern what do my people do in this situation. And so in light of the weeks that we've been going through and recognizing some of the the divisions and things going on in the church, John stops right here in this moment as a father-like figure. In verse 18, he starts, children. And lovingly, what he begins to do is tell them the answer to this question as a way of doing communal identity shaping. Who are my people? John's going to tell them. And here's the first thing he tells them. Children, it's the last hour. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. And therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Now, as soon as I read that and you heard it read up there, you didn't hear anything else I said because you're stuck on the word Antichrist. So when you hear the word antichrist, what comes to mind? Hitler. <laughs> Somebody said last service, Left Behind series, maybe a horror movie you once saw. Uh, whatever picture that you have in your mind of the word antichrist, helpful or unhelpful, this is what came to mind for the first century audience of John, who is made up of a predominantly Jewish form, body of Christians. They had a background, the history within the Old Testament, which saw that there were God's people and that there were empires that stood against God's people. And sometimes there were these figures that would rise up. You get this out of Daniel, for example, where it talks about these evil empires as beasts, but then there's like a little horn that comes up from the beast, which represents either a political or religious figure, a person who would stand openly against God. And they had, you know, examples of people that would look like this. And then in their mind, in this new community, they had this vision of that someday there might be a antichrist figure in the end times to mark before Jesus came back. Here's what you need to know about this for John. What John is going to draw the attention to is that there are many antichrists that have already come, but they're not the point. The point is that they need to know what time it is for them. To answer the question, who are my people? He's going to begin by answering the question, they are an end time people. So who are these many antichrists who have already come? If he's saying, guys, you're looking for an antichrist, they've already come. There's many of the antichrists. Who is he talking about? Well, if you look at it down in verse 22, jumping ahead, he says it explicitly. Who is the liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, 
He who denies the Father and the Son. Now, we're going to get a lot more into end times stuff here in the fall when we open up the book of Revelation. So if, you're, if you want to jump into like, you know, way more detail, what's going to happen when the world ends and dragons and crazy, come back in the fall. Um, the thing you need to know right now about John in the language of Antichrist is this, just as, as plain as simple in this context that he's saying. Anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ, is anti-Christ, which is helpful. Helpful in the sense is that it identifies for John, there are in this time that we live in two voices, voices that are for Christ and voices that are anti-Christ. But again, the point is not on this, this specific word. He says all of this, he tells them, so that they might know it is the last hour, what he wants them to understand. The whole point of talking about the Antichrist for them is to let them know we live in end times now. So in 2020, when everyone was like, mm, it's end times, John, the apostle, would have been like, yeah, it's been that way for 2,000 years. In the Christian mind, Paul, John, Peter, James, all of his disciples, all of the early church, they had this expectation that was informed by Jesus who said that he would come like a thief in the night, that nothing left would happen in history except for the return of Christ. And that could happen at any moment. And what that did to them is that as a people, they had this sense of urgency, this sense of expectancy, this sense of waiting for their coming king to return and judge all things. And so what he is trying to highlight to them is that they are an end time people. That is who my people are. I think this is really helpful for us to hear because over the course of human history, any time that there are moments where Christianity begins to take root in a place or in a time or in a history where things are comfortable, we lose sight of the fact that we are an end-time people. We lose our sense of urgency, of desperation, of expectancy. And so I think, like, they need to be reminded that they're an end-time people. We need to be reminded that we're an end-time people. Because how you live is going to be determined by what time you believe it is in the world. So Hiro Anoda was a Japanese soldier in World War II. And he was stationed within the Philippines, amongst many other soldiers, and his commanding officer told him that he should never surrender even if he had to die fighting and left him there on an island in the 40s. He continued to attack people even after the war was over in the Philippines for 30 years. To the point, right, that they began in the Philippine government to drop pamphlets all over where he was thought to be. And he later explained that when he got those pamphlets that said the war was over, he just assumed this is propaganda from America. Why? Because he interpreted everything through the question, who are my people? And what time is it for my people? And so eventually what had to happen, they literally had to find who his specific commanding officer was fly him out to tell him that it was okay to surrender. Some 30 people that he had killed later 
How you live is going to be determined on what time you believe it is for your people. So here's the test. I want you to imagine that Jesus texts you today. Somehow you know it's actually from Jesus and it's not some crazy person, okay? Let's just, in this hypothetical situation, I want you to imagine the moment you get that text message, like it has like just some emoji that makes you know (laughs) that's Jesus, okay? You get the text message and Jesus says to you, I'm coming back in three years. Not 20, not 100, and not one day. He says, three years, and then he gives you his direction. You can make no drastic changes to your life. You can't quit your job and go be a missionary. You can't do whatever else. You have to stay exactly where you are for the next three years, but I want you to live faithfully as if I'm coming back in three years. What would your life look like? If you can genuinely answer that question with, not a lot would change. You're in a really good spot. If you can't, then you may have forgotten that we are an end time people. That we are to live with an urgent expectancy that Jesus is actually going to come back. Who are my people? An end time people. But John wants to use this opportunity of those people who have left, those antichrists, to continue to drive deeper who they are. And he tells them in verse 20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. He tells them, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. You are an anointed people. Who are my people? An anointed people. But we don't use that language commonly, so we have to ask, what does that even mean? What, is, what does it mean to be anointed? Well, for them, they hear that, and they know immediately, anointed. Man, Jacob had that dream of heaven and earth being united in that moment, and he poured oil over the rocks that he slept in to mark. This is a place of heaven and earth. And then they knew, oh yeah, the priests were anointed. They poured oil dripping down over the priests to mark. This is a person who will lead our community in connecting God to everyone. And then they remembered King David who is anointed with oil to become God's people's king. But for them, all of it really came down to more than anything. Jesus was the anointed one. Jesus Christ is, an, Christ is not a last name. Christ is a title. And it means the anointed one. They knew that Jesus was like capital T-H-E, the anointed one in the history of the world. He was the uniting of heaven and earth. He was the true and greater priest of God's people, and he was the king who rescued everyone from their enemies. He is the anointed one. He is the holy one. But what he's talking about here is that you are anointed too. You all who would call upon the name of the Lord are anointed by God. What are we anointed with? Oh, some people said the Holy Spirit. I love it. You're jumping right ahead. Slow down. (laughs) Because, you know, if I had heard this first walking into a church, I would have been like, where's the oil? Nobody's poured any on me yet. He tells them, you have been anointed and you all have. 
what? Knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but you do know it. We have been anointed with truth. What has been poured out on us like oil is the good news about Jesus. As the people of God, we believe that we have the true story of the world. That how we see history, human history, interpreted through the story of Israel, of God's creating everything good and true and beautiful and the horrible story of everything getting broken in sin. That is the history of the world. And that story could only find its completion in the man Jesus of Nazareth who lived and preached the good news about the kingdom of God. He preached that the kingdom of God was breaking into our very reality, our universe, in real-time history. It's not necessarily just a religious belief. It is a public declaration. This is what has happened in our world. You have been anointed with that story. You've been anointed with the fact that God has poured out on you through the Holy Spirit the knowledge that Jesus died for you, that he resurrected from the dead to conquer the grave for us, and that he will return to renew all things. That is what has been poured out on you like oil. Whenever we talk about end times, I always have these two thoughts that happen in simultaneous. First thought goes like this. They thought it was the end times coming soon then. It's been 2,000 years. What has taken so long? The second thought that comes really quickly after that is, what if God came back in 2009? You know when I became a Christian? 2010. God is not slow as we think he is slow. If you ask God what he is waiting for, he's waiting to anoint you with truth of the gospel like oil. But it goes even deeper than that and do not think for a second that this is an intellectual ascent. This is knowledge like you know a friend, like you know a family member, like you know someone you love intimately. That's why he tells them, you have knowledge. And then later he says in verse 23, whoever confesses the son has what? The father also. And then in verse 25, he says, this is the promise that he made to us. What? Eternal life. And Jesus defined for us already what eternal life is, is that we know the God who made us intimately, unified with him in relationship forever. Who are my people? My people are the people who have been anointed with the Holy Spirit, the truth of the gospel, the very love of God has been poured out on you, on any of you who call upon the name of Jesus. That is what has been given and has been poured out in love. This is who my people are. What John is doing is a type of community identity formation. He is telling them who they are again and again and again so they would not forget. And because, too, you see in verse 26, what does he say? 
I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. If there is a voice that confesses that Jesus is the Christ, there is only the voice that would draw us away from that. There is, in John's mind, no neutral. And so this idea that our identity would be formed as a people, people identity, and that it would be formed by God and what he gives to us, that flies directly in the face of our culture, does it not? Within our culture, identity is something that is internal, something intrinsic. In fact, people talk as if they go on this, experience of this journey of self-discovery, this idea that I can find something within myself, and once I discover who I really am, I then can bring it out to the world and tell everybody who I am. The fragile problem with that is it's exhausting to uphold that and it gets really divisive when then you have to have everyone affirm who you are and cut out anyone who does not. I'm gonna tell you a story about you when you were about six months old. Here's the story, here's what happened. Either your mother or your father held you And given what they know now about child development, there was a moment for you as a child where your mom or your dad saw you point to something. And then your mom or dad reached out and grabbed that thing and gave it to you. And in your little baby brain, here's what's happened to you. You deduced based off of how your brain was working that you reached out and grabbed the thing. Because in a child's mind up to that point of development, they have a hard time even distinguishing where baby begins and mom begins. There is a connection to where mom, dad, and the people who love me holding me, they get their identity through that. I believe God made it that way so that as people are living with one another, we can all speak into one another's identity. Because our culture will talk about our identity as something that is, again, intrinsic, inalienable, right? It's always there. But our identity is defined by two things. Who loves you and who do you love? And you might hear that as a modern person and go, yes, love. But here's the problem. Anyone or anything that you love will fail you or die. Always. And so if you were to tie your identity to who you love, even romantically or an ideology that you love, it is still just as fragile I think God made it so that we all get to impact one another's identity because you, if you follow it down, right, someone gives you bits of your identity, you, it was given from them, right? And then somebody gave that to them. And so you follow it up to the top, you have two options. At that top, identity comes originally from God or an idol. Those are your only two options. And idols will always fail us. And what John wants them to be able to connect the dots in here is that you are an anointed people, a people who gets their identity together in that we amongst all the people of the world are a family where God has poured his love into us. He has poured his grace out on us. He has given us his son. So, What source of identity have you been living into lately? Is it the identity of 
the people of God anointed by the love of God, by the grace of Jesus Christ, or in something else. Because what has happened to all of us is that people love us and we grow up and at some point, some sooner than others, people fail to love us. So what do you do with your identity then? You learn other ways to create your own value and identity. They're not very good, but they're what we got, we think. So what have you been putting your identity into? Is it something that you can create? So your identity is in productivity, creativity, significance? Is it what you desire that you put your identity into? And so you build an identity based off of being satisfied with experiences, security, romance, sex. Hear me to the Christian in the room. Any story you tell yourself, any story you hear in the back of your mind, any story at all that says that your identity is anything other that you have been anointed where the love of Jesus Christ is the voice of the Antichrist. And you need to not listen to it. And I think this is why we need each other too. We need to preach the good news to each other. If you're in this room and you would say, I, man, I don't know how I'm here today. And now this guy's talking about the Antichrist. Pretty sure he just said, I'm an Antichrist. <laughs> not going to say that. But here's what I would say. There is within the Bible two categories. Someone who sees Jesus as the answer and someone who sees him not. I think there's a third category probably, which is people who have not heard it either. But if you are here today, I am telling you, any other thing you put your identity in in your life, if it has not already failed you, will. And the invitation that Jesus gives to all people, tribes, nations, and tongues is this. I will pour out my love on you. I will pour out my spirit on you. I will give you a new identity that is so rooted in the creator God that it cannot be touched by anything, by performance, by death, by anything in the world. That is the invitation that Jesus makes to all of us. So John is, as a good father, telling them this is who they are, giving them a community identity formation because he knows that how you live, what you do, is always going to be based on that question, who are my people? The next thing that comes from that question in your brain over and over again is who are my people? What do my people do in this situation? That's why it's so important to know that answer that question. And so the next thing that he says to them, the last thing we'll talk about today, who are my people? He says that they are an abiding people. Look at verse 24. He says, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And look at verse 27. The anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and it knows no lie, and just as it has taught you, abide 
in him. What's the repeating word here? Abide. We are an abiding people. I imagine that this came straight out of a memory from John. And if you look up in John's gospel, in John chapter 15, there's a teaching that Jesus gives. But I imagine it like this, because Jesus had his last dinner with John and his disciples. They were sharing Passover, so they were drinking wine. And they were eating food. And Jesus teaches them and he tells them, I'm about to get crucified. And I'm sure they're like all over the place mentally, right? But then the dinner ends and Jesus leaves and goes to the garden where he's going to pray for them and he's going to be betrayed. I imagine along the way, at some point, Jesus stops them and he grabs a few of the disciples, kind of like around the shoulder is how I imagine it. And I imagine they're like, you know, they're like kind of having moments of like sadness, but then fun and like kind of back and forth. Like, what? Jesus is crazy right now. And I imagine Jesus has just this twinkle in his eyes. He looks at them, probably almost tear-filled, and he says, do you see that, that vine, the grapevine right there? Yeah, Jesus, there's lots of them everywhere. It's Jerusalem. Do you see the root, like how the stalk grows up from the vine right there? Do you see it? Yeah, we've seen a vine branch before, Jesus. Okay, well, do you see how the branches are connected to the root of that, of that vine, right? Yeah, Jesus, we've seen a vine branch before. Do you see how those branches have fruit on them? And if, what if I cut it off? What would happen then? It would never have fruit. It would, it would die. Abide in me. Just like that branch stays connected to the vine, abide in me. John is just repeating what he has heard from his Savior, you already have everything you need, church. You have the good news about Jesus. And as Tim Keller said it before, the the gospel is not like ABCs. It's not the starting place. It's A through Z. It's not something you graduate from. The good news about Jesus is everything that we live from. Who are my people? A gospel people, and we stay abiding in Jesus. That is what he tells them to do. And if you hear that and you, your heart is stirred to this, yeah, I want to, ab- I want to stay in Jesus. I want to abide in him. I want to live in him. I want to stay connected like a branch stays connected to the root. How? How do we do that? How do we abide in Jesus and stay connected? Jesus tells them in John chapter 15, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Okay, I just gotta keep Jesus' commandments and that will make me stay connected to Jesus. What commandment, Jesus? This is my commandment, Jesus says, that you love one another as I have loved you. You wanna stay in the gospel? You wanna remain in the end times and not walk away. You want to make sure there's a security being rooted in Jesus, abiding in him. This is my commandment. Love one another as I've loved you. Love each other. And this is where, as I'm reading it, I'm like, ah, Jesus, can't you be a little bit more postmodern? Can't you say something like, 
love yourself. And when you learn to love yourself, then you will be able to, out of that, love other people. And if people don't love you back, cut them out of your life. You don't need people like that. Instead, Jesus commands his disciples to abide in him by loving each other. Here's what is so frustrating and hard about this part of Jesus' teaching. If we are to do this, it's going to be hard because some of us are hard to love. And if you aren't, you're like, I don't know, man. Like, I, I don't, there's not a lot of people that are that hard to love. For me, you are the hard to love person. <laughs> Here, here's the tricky thing. Every one of us in this room is so hard to love Anybody who is actually going to love us is going to feel like it's killing them to love us because God had to die to love us. And that is Jesus' definition of what it means to love. He tells them, you want to love, you want to stay in my love, love each other. And then he tells them right after that, there is no greater love than this, that someone lays down their life and dies for a friend. Gosh, it would be so much easier if Jesus just said, hey, make sure that you get love. Because then everybody in this room could sit around and be like, who's gonna love me? And yet Jesus makes it so that his people are not afforded that option. Rather, every single one of us is commanded if we want to abide in Jesus to look around and go, how do I love the other Christian in the room even if it kills me? So you do it by serving each other. You do it by preaching the good news to each other. You do it by being present in each other's lives. You do it by mourning with those who mourn and weeping with those who weep. You do it by being present with those who are socially awkward. You do it by the people who have attitudes and thoughts that are kind of hard to be around and you're pretty convinced that they don't line up with the gospel, but they're over there thinking about the ones that you're doing that don't line up with the gospel. It is supposed to feel like dying because that is the nature of the gospel that God dies for his enemies out of love. You wanna remain in Jesus, remain as that people, love each other. But that is such a hard task, it's borderline impossible. In fact, it is impossible. It is impossible for you to do. Unless, unless you don't go back to what you've been anointed with. You cannot love people to the point of pouring out your life unless you actually believe that Jesus loves you. And it might be a sign that you are not believing the love, the gospel, the anointing that has been given to you if love does not come out easily. And if it doesn't, go back to the anointing that you have been given. God loves you to the point that he poured out his love, his spirit, his good news onto you when you were not for him. You were an enemy. That is the beginning of love from which we pour out 
are love. Who are my people? We are a people of the end who have been anointed by the truth and the love of God and a people who abide and stay put in that good news message. And so what I'm going to invite us all to do now is take a moment where we're going to just ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate to us what we need to hear. So I'm going to invite you for a moment to close your eyes. We're going to do a moment of prayer. If you've never prayed before, if this is new to you, then you can just listen or take a little snooze. But for, for us, like this moment of silence is a moment where we get to slow down and go, God, I heard your voice speak. Now, would you speak to me? And here's the questions I want you to ask as you listen. What false identity do I need to turn from today? Where am I not believing in the love that has been poured out and anointed on me? And here's the last one. God, can you show me how you want me to love others? I pray that you would do that miracle right now where your Holy Spirit would speak. We're going to take communion this morning and here would be my invitation that you would find somebody to take it with if you're able. And be reminded that this is our, this is our people, an anointed people anointed by the blood of Jesus, which is represented by the wine, anointed by the very body given to us as Jesus died, which is represented by the bread. And so when you take and when you eat and when you drink, be reminded of the love that Jesus has given. Let's, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your son, the gift that you've given us in him beyond what we could ever expect. And I pray that you would help us all today come to believe deeply in the love that has been given to us. We love you, Jesus, and ask that you'd continue to minister to all of us, even as we sing in the rest of the day, that you would stay close to us in our hearts, speaking to us, Jesus. Jesus.